Well, Merry Christmas, Fairhaven. Great to see you. I hope you're watching soccer. I don't know if you are or not, but I hope you're watching soccer. Great things are happening, although the U.S. is out now, so, uh, but a lot of good teams that are still there. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. For those of you that come on a regular basis, great to see your faces. Thank you for being a part of the Advent season. Believe that there's no better way to celebrate Advent than to come together as the church and to look at God's Word and to sing and to celebrate, and so it's good to have you here as always. If you're new, you've been greeted at any one of our campuses. I want to say Merry Merry Christmas to Springboro and Northmont and Beaver Creek and Classics and, of course, all of you here at the Centerville campus. Many of you that are online, we're welcoming you as well. We're glad you're with us, whether you're in the Dayton area or somewhere else. We're so honored that you would find your way here with us today. As we begin, we're in week two of a series that we started last week called The Promise. Before we jump in, I want to ask you a question because it will lead into our series. And the question is this, should you put up Christmas decorations before or after the beginning of December, all right? Let's see how we do here at Fairhaven Church. We've already had one service uh, in many different locations, so let's try this one here. How many of you would say, it's okay to put up your Christmas decorations before December or before Thanksgiving? Let me just see your hands, raise them up high, all over the place, I'm looking all over the place. It's interesting, I'm noticing couples are disagreeing here. It's a, <laughs> that's not right right there. Okay, by raised hand, how many of you say it's gotta happen after December, like December, right? I mean, you, you look around here, okay, it's about half and half. Actually, I think the uh, before December wins on that one right here at the Centerville campus. I don't know about the other campuses. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, Christmas, uh, I don't know what your traditions are. For my family, we try to do it after Thanksgiving. This year, we've done it really after Thanksgiving, like yesterday, um, so we're really behind. Um, but it's interesting how when you set up your lights and your tree and bring so much emotion and feeling and joy, and really that's what it's about. I mean, some of us, because of our childhood memories and some of the traditions that you have in our home, we always look forward to Christmas Day. My wife, Kathy, she makes the best cinnamon rolls. All of you are invited if you want to come over. Um, they're phenomenal. It's just great, great traditions that we have there. The truth of the matter is, I think you know what I know, and that is that joy in the Christmas season doesn't really come from lights. It doesn't come from trees that we set up. It doesn't come from gifts underneath. Joy is something that we need to think about and talk about. As it turns out, in the Christmas story, we learn about joy and we learn how we get joy, which is really inter interesting because joy is not something that just happens because of a season. The truth of the matter is, there are some of us that go through the Christmas season and sadness really is the thing that's, you know, the banner over you. Maybe a lost loved one or maybe something in a relationship or financially or a lost job or I don't know what it is for you, but there is some sadness that can happen during the Christmas season and that's why we want to be a family. If you've noticed that with people around you in any one of our campuses or even online, we want to come around you because it's interesting how when you celebrate the Christmas season, joy, catch this, can overshadow even sadness. And so we're so glad that you're here to celebrate with us. We are in a series and we're calling it The Promise because God made a promise and he fulfilled it. And I've been saying that uh, last week and this week, and I want you to say it out loud in just a few minutes with me, but that's what God did. He made a promise that he was going to send his son and that story of Jesus coming to earth to be our savior is foreshadowed all through the Bible. That's why in this series, we're looking at the entire Bible and, and looking together and discovering that the Christmas story doesn't just start in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It actually starts in the beginning of the Bible. We looked at that last week, actually. And so we're going to do that same thing today. The question that we're asking is this, what do Abraham, Adam and Eve, Abraham, David, 
and Zerubbabel have to do with the Christmas story. And at first glance, if you haven't been with us or weren't with us last week, you're like, I don't know. That doesn't much, make much sense because we don't really talk about the Christmas story in relationship to Adam and Eve or David or Abraham. Well, we looked at the last week, Adam and Eve, we started in Genesis chapter three, and we saw in there that God said that the offspring of Eve would crush the enemy, and that's true, isn't it? He crushes the enemy in our soul today, and ultimately he's going to crush the enemy um, at the end when he comes back for the second advent, and so the Christmas story actually starts in Genesis chapter 3. And then we get to Abraham. We're going to look at Abraham today, a story that I know you're familiar with. See, the promise that we're talking about here is not just a promise of a baby born to us. It's much bigger than that. It's a baby born to us because God made a promise and he wants to do something in your life and our life. He actually wants to substitute his son for us. We'll learn that today as we look at another part of the Christmas story in the Old Testament. We've been saying this, that the promise didn't begin in the manger. It actually started in the garden. That's why Adam and Eve uh, have a part in the Christmas story as God spoke to them and God spoke to the serpent that's there. Today, we're going to learn that the promise was given at an altar, on an altar of a father sacrificing a son, if you can believe that, right? So God makes a promise. God always makes promises. And church, this is your part right there, the yellow part. I want you to say it out loud because if you get this, you get the entire sermon series that we have during December. I really, in the whole month of December, want you to remember one thing, even though we're looking at stories and we're looking at the story in different places. I really only want you to remember one thing, and that is this, that God makes a promise and he fulfills it. And that carries us right into the new year and really all through life. So let me say my part, you say your part, and all of our campuses online, just say it out loud, even if you're in a coffee shop. A little weird, but it'll be awesome. Here we go. God makes a promise and he fulfills, he fulfills it. That is great news right there. If you're here today and you're testing out faith and you're, you got lots of questions, that's great news for you there. And as we look at a story today, we're going to be very honest for those of you that are questioning faith or maybe you're thinking about faith during the Christmas season. Grab your Bibles or devices and power them up with me to Genesis chapter 22. Last week we were in Genesis 3, as I mentioned. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, the first 18 verses. I'm going to, in fact, read the entire story. So if you don't have a Bible, scoot over next to somebody that does or grab a Bible. We have them in all of our campuses. Truth is, we'll give you one if you don't have one. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible. We just believe it's that important. And this story here is a story that you probably have heard if you went to Sunday school or if you've spent any time in church. It's a story about a man named Abraham who takes his son, Isaac, goes up to a mountain and God says, I want you to put your son on an altar and sacrifice him. And right before he lifts up the knife to slaughter his own son, God steps in. Now, let's make sure that we think this through a little bit because we all know how the story ends. Imagine you don't know how the story ends. Or imagine you are a person where you're really questioning faith or thinking about faith or you're new to faith and the question that might come to you as we start to read this story is a question that would go something like this um, what father would do that or maybe a better question is what god would ask a father to do that and if you're here today and you're new at faith or you're questioning it you came in a great week because we're going to answer that question as we look at this and the answer is amazing. 
Basically, it's because of what God wants to do in giving to us joy. Catch this. You don't get joy because you do something. You receive joy through Jesus Christ. Joy doesn't come because you hang up lights and put a tree up and have presents. Joy comes because you receive it from God, and we'll learn that even more so today. So grab your Bibles. They're open. Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read it for you, and I'm going to stop myself and interrupt myself along the way here because there's details in this story that if you went to Sunday school, you probably didn't see them or you haven't read them like I have as I really studied this, and I thought, wow, I didn't see that. And it's incredible when you really read it to see all the things that God wants to teach us through this story. Let's take a look. Verse 1. After these things, and there's a lot that happened in chapter 21, you kind of need to see it. Isaac was born. Hagar, um, Sarah's handmaid, was kicked out of the family. That was a lot of drama and dysfunction there. There was all kinds of things happening with his commanders. After these things, God tested, that's an important word, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told them. Now, how long is this trip? We learn that in the next verse. Four days, three days. On the third day, you may want to underline third day. Church, does that have any significance to us? Absolutely does. This story is not only about Christmas, it's about the fact that there's going to be a son who's offered and who rises in three days. Incredible. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here. You guys stay here with the donkey and I and the boy, if you like to write in your Bibles, the word boy there doesn't mean nine-year-old. It actually means young man or young adult or, you know, young, um, young man is really the right word right there. And so I want you to know that because that detail will play into the story as we think through this and wrestle with this story that really on the, on the surface can be quite disturbing and yet very wonderful when you understand what God is trying to communicate to us here. So he takes the boy or the young man and will go over there and worship and watch this and come back to you again. Underline that phrase, come again to you in verse uh, four, five, I'm sorry, verse five, come again to you. So let's see, Abraham, uh, God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son. I want you to go to the place that I'm going to tell you and I want you to sacrifice your son. So he brings a couple guys with him. They load up the donkeys and wood because they need wood for a sacrifice to make a fire. And they get going. And he says, okay, you guys stay here. Uh, Isaac and I are going to go the rest of the way. And so as they're going, he says, this is Abraham now speaking to the guys. He says, look, we are coming back again. That's an important detail for us as we're thinking through this. Because when we ask the question, what father would do this? What God would ask a father to do this, our answer in part is given in Hebrews chapter 11, which is in the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament really are the same story of how the promise of God is coming. I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, does that sound familiar? We just read that. When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises, there's the title of our series, 
He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. But it goes on in verse 19. It says this. Abraham reasoned, in other words, he was thinking, you can imagine as he's walking for three days, thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this. I've got wood, I've got my son. Really, God wants me to sacrifice my son? I mean, he's reasoning, he's thinking. That's what it says there. So Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. The faith of this man is so great that he took this three-day journey and obeyed God in wanting to sacrifice his son, knowing that God was so powerful and had such a good plan that he could actually raise Isaac from the dead. I don't know if you're catching this, but this is a foreshadowing for us of what's going to happen. That Isaac is going to lay on an altar, and the truth of the matter is you and I should lay on an altar. But Isaac is going to end, you know the story, Isaac is at the very end, he's not going to be sacrificed, because God steps in with a substitute, and he does the same for me and for you. There's a substitute, which brings joy. It's absolutely incredible. Let's continue on in the story, as we see here that Moses was so confident that God could even raise from the dead Isaac if he sacrificed him. So, verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Isaac was a young man enough that Isaac actually carried all the wood. That's an important detail. Young, strapping guy carrying the wood. Abraham was, you know, kind of an old guy, and his son Isaac carried the wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abram, My father, he said, Here I am, my son, he answered. Behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac is saying, Dad, um, I see the wood here, and I see that you've got prepared for a fire, and you've got a knife. Like, what are we sacrificing here? What a question to a dad. <laughs> Can you imagine? What a question. And so Abram, Abraham answers, verse 8, Abraham answers and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. If you like to write in your Bibles, it's right here that you ought to write that God is wanting to show something more to us than just the story of Abraham and Isaac. He wants to foreshadow for us the fact that Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to take the place that we have on the altar because we should be laid on the altar. Anybody agree with me on that one? I should be on that. You should be on that. But God, God substituted us with Jesus. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we're going to have communion today to remind ourselves of the great joy of what God did for us. And so here they are. He's carrying the wood and they go up and Isaac says, dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? And so Abram says, well, God's going to provide that. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. And he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, what a disturbing story. 
but we know the end of the story, so it's not so disturbing to us. But if you're new to the faith, this is like, why would God do this? Why would a father want to do this? There's a very specific reason here. And if you don't know the end of the story, God's going to step in, as he promises to do here. But I want you to notice something really important about Isaac. I want you to notice that Abraham takes Isaac, lays him on top of the wood. And I want you to notice that this son lays there. He stays there. We have no indication here that he fights with his dad or he says anything to his dad. He lays there. Why? Let's wrestle with this story just a little bit. I mean, Isaac, if you think about it, Isaac as a young man, he was old enough to carry the wood, which means he's pretty strong, right? As a guy, wood is heavy. Um, if you're carrying the wood, you're, you're, you know, you got, you got some pipes, and so he's strong. He's a young man here. Secondly, Isaac was strong enough that he could stop his dad. He could actually stop his dad and say, no, no, no you're not going to lay me down. You're not going to tie me up. Come on, dad. This is not, what are you doing here? We see none of that in the story. And the third thing is really what makes this story so brilliant. Catch this. Isaac lays there and here's why. Not because he's old enough to carry the wood and not because he's strong enough, but because he's old enough to know his birthright. Wow. Watch this. See, if you were a firstborn son in this culture, which doesn't make any sense to us in our culture today, if you were a firstborn son, you receive what's called a birthright. A birthright meant that you received all of the inheritance, not a portion of it. You received all of it. Now, many of us today, if you've got kids or you've got grandkids, perhaps in your will, you probably have doled out that if you've got two kids, you're going to take your inheritance and you're going to split it up among two. If you've got four, if you've got one, you know, or grandkids, you may add the grandkids in there. You know, we just divide it all up. Not in, the, not in this culture, not even in the first century culture. What they would do is if you were the firstborn son, you received all of the inheritance. And right away, you're like, that's not fair. But because they had the birthright, they had two responsibilities. Number one, because they received all of the inheritance, it was their job to take care of the rest of the siblings. So it wasn't that they got all the inheritance just so they could spend it on themselves. It was their job to take care of all the siblings. Secondly, this is the most important one. If you were the firstborn son and you had the birthright, it was also your responsibility to pay for the justice of the family. In other words, it was your job to pay the penalty for whatever happened in the family. Now, we don't have time here today, but I would love to take you on a little bit of a tour about Abraham. How many of you know that Abraham had some questionable behavior in his life? And so I'll go out there and be honest today that I've had questionable behavior in my life. Anybody else want to join me in that right there? Right? Put your hand up if you agree that you've got questionable behavior in your life. And so Abraham had some questionable behavior in his life. And so you can see why Isaac may not know all of it, but he knew his dad. He knew his dad was not perfect. He knew his dad made mistakes. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, we read that Abraham took his wife Sarah and lied to the Pharaoh and said, it's my sister. In fact, you can have her as a wife. That's twisted questionable. You could go to Genesis chapter 17 and you could see here that God promised that Abraham was going to have a son. And he laughed like, come on, I'm old. So he had some questionable behavior in his life. And 
folks, we don't understand this because of the culture of that time, but Abraham laid his son Isaac there and his son stayed there because he had the birthright and he knew that he had to pay for the justice of the family, which is so amazing to me as we read the story because what God's gonna do is he's going to substitute Isaac for an animal that's caught in the woods, in the thicket that's there. And isn't that what God did for us? We laid on the altar, and the story of Christmas is about the fact that God sent his son as a baby to be the substitute for us, perfect sacrifice, which creates joy in our life. Let's continue reading the story. You can see it here, verse 11. So Isaac is on the woods, he's there, dad's ready to sacrifice him, perhaps the fire has started. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Anytime you see in scripture where God refers to somebody in, with their name twice, that's a really significant thing. You can read that about Moses. God called Moses twice. God called Jacob twice. God called Samuel twice. God called Martha twice. God called Simon Peter twice. God called Saul twice. Jesus coming into Jerusalem called Jerusalem twice. Jesus says many people who are religious are gonna think that they have a relationship with God and Jesus says, that some people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't even know you. Twice he used the word Lord. Why is that significant? Because when the angel said Abraham's name twice, what that does is it elevates the opportunity for what God wants to do in your life. During this Christmas season, how amazing would it be if you heard God call your name twice? Because he wants to elevate you in a way where you may be dealing with things in your life that make no sense. And yet we're talking about joy. How does that work out? We'll talk about that in a second. And so God wants to elevate Abraham here and he wants to use him as an example because he wants to test him and to tell us the Christmas story because there's gonna be one line we're gonna read in just a second here that is the Christmas story. Let's read verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went over and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, if you want to write that down. As it is to this day on the mount of the Lord, as it, as it shall be provided for you and I. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, here comes the Christmas story, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In other words, your offspring is going to take care of business. Your offering is going to deal with all of our enemies. Your offspring is the one who's going to settle the score. Your offspring is going to be loving but just. 
Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I want you to see it because here's the Christmas story in Genesis chapter 22. In your offspring. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter one, and you don't need to turn there, but just jot it down if you want to read it. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter one, you'd see in there that this is the story of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because the story of Jesus coming is the fact that it's the offspring of Abraham, which will impact all nations. This is not just about the United States of America, folks. This is about the world. And that's why here at Fairhaven Church, we want all kinds of diversity. We want economic diversity. We want racial diversity. We want different countries represented here, different nationalities, the kind of diversity, because that's what heaven is going to be like. It says here that the blessing of God is about all nations, not just our nation, all nations. And it says here that all nations of the earth will be blessed. If you don't know, blessed means joy. That's why we say, God, bless you. That's why we say blessings to you. What that really means is, may you experience joy. God's blessing upon you today means, may you experience God's joy in your life. See, the word blessed means joy. It means happy. It means God's favor. It means that your life is enlarged. It means that your life is lengthened, not in time, but in your legacy. Did you realize that Christmas, because of Genesis chapter 22, is an opportunity for you and for me to consider our legacy? Because the word blessed means the length and breadth of your legacy. What a great thing for us to consider at Christmas as we consider our lives and think about all the things that we're dealing with. So because this story is where the Christmas story is and God says, from your offspring, Abraham, Matthew chapter one, the, the savior of the world is gonna come. He's gonna impact all the nations and you will be blessed. You will find joy. See, church, joy is something that you receive. It's not something that you can run after. It won't happen by putting lights up. It won't happen by putting a tree up. It won't happen by buying gifts. That all helps. That all just really is the foreshadowing of the fact that God gives us joy through his son. So the application for us comes in three ways. Let me give them to you as we think this story through. Number one, joy. Joy is trusting God even when God allow, what God allows doesn't make sense. I think you'd all agree with me that it makes no sense for God to tell Abraham to go up to a mountain and sacrifice his son. How can you experience joy in the middle of that? The truth of the matter is you can. We can because joy can overshadow that in our life because joy is trusting God even when what God allows doesn't make any sense because God has the end of the story in mind. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's working on, even though it doesn't seem to make any sense to us. Can you imagine a father looking at his son who's tied up, laying on the wood, match in his hand, knife in the other? That makes no sense. Except if God is trying to communicate something to Abraham and trying to communicate something to you and to me, and that is there's a sacrifice coming. There's a substitute coming. See, you and I, we are Isaac. We belong on the altar, but God had a substitute, and that's why we can become blessed. And when you and I understand that blessing, it's so 
powerful in our lives. That's why in Romans chapter eight, we read these words, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because God's joy is about us experiencing the love of God. And even though you're facing a situation that doesn't make any sense, doesn't mean that somehow you're absent or missing from the love of God. It just means trust him because that's what joy does. Joy is trusting God even when what God allows makes no sense. Number two, joy is knowing that the world makes empty promises. Now, you and I know that on the surface. The problem is, is that we don't think it through enough because we give our lives to empty promises. Like our careers and our portfolios and our health and all these things. And sometimes we don't even realize we do. But Christmas is the opportunity for us to understand that joy doesn't come from a you know, great career. It helps, but that's not where joy comes from. Joy doesn't come from a portfolio that's massive. It helps, but that's not where it comes from. See, joy is understanding and knowing that the world makes empty promises. Let me give you an example. How many of you own a smartphone, either an iPhone or an Android? Can I just see your hands in all of our campuses online, Springboro? Just raise your hand, look around. I just want you to look around the people around you, all right? These are all the addicts at our church family right here. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> it's incredible. Did you know that the iPhone came out January 2000, anybody know? 2007. It wasn't that long ago. And there's an author, her name is Jean Marie Twinge, who wrote a book called iGen. And she states in her book that the iPhone promised a much better life. Now, the truth of the matter is you can get more, you can get your emails quicker, your calendar, and I use it. I'm not saying anything disparagingly about an iPhone or an Android. I have one. But I want you to know that the promise that was there was that the iPhone or the Android was going to change your life. So she writes a book, and the book is entitled iGen, and she talks about those that were born after 2007. So if you're born after 2007, listen up. She says that you're more anxious, you're more depressed, and you're less happy than any other generation in history because you bought into a promise that this smartphone was going to change your life. And it turns out that it's actually ruining relationships. It's actually not allowing connections to happen well. It's actually creating addiction in a way that is really detrimental. Now, before we massacre the iGen generation, let's just be honest that theologians tell us that we're all addicts. We all have an addiction problem to either our careers or substances or attention or material things or devices. And we all go through what's called the cycle of addiction in life. Say with me. The cycle of addiction is when you're obsessed with something, whether it's a career or a substance or a hobby or a relationship or whatever it might be in your life. When we're obsessed about something, and when we act on that obsession, there's a rush. And after the rush, there's a little bit of a drop. And that drop is called despair. And when we experience despair because we were obsessed and we acted on it, we found a rush and there's a despair, there's a drop. We don't say, you know what? That's not good for me. I'm going to go somewhere else. What we do is we go back to the obsession and we start all over again. And we're obsessed, and we give in, and we have a rush, and we despair. We go back to the obsession, we have a rush, and we despair. That's called the cycle 
of addiction. And according to theologians, we all have that. Because there are things that step into our lives that promise things that are empty. Am I right, church? And so isn't it great to know that at Christmas, we can remind ourselves that it's not your career, it's not your portfolio, it's not health, even though those are all great things, it's not sports, it's not the substance that you have in your life that brings joy. Joy is knowing that the world makes empty promises. Thirdly, joy, and last, joy is received from God. It's not achieved by us. In other words, it's not based on the spiritual treadmill of how fast you run spiritually. It's not based on how many Bible studies you go to, although you should probably be a part of a Bible study because you're going to grow. It's not based on all those things. It's not based on how many lights you set up or the trees, as I mentioned. Joy is received because joy is found in a person. A person who took the altar in my place and in your place. You see, Luke chapter 2 tells us this. The angels came and told something to the shepherds that I didn't see before. But as I was studying, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Look at this. This is Luke chapter 2. So this is the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22. Now we're going to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. Luke chapter 2 says this. The angel said to them, that's the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause, will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You see, when you and I enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he will cause us to experience great joy. Joy is received. It's not achieved in our lives. See, it's no wonder that we sing the song, Joy to the world, because it comes from Genesis chapter 22, and in Luke chapter 2, and in Revelation, and all through the Bible, joy to the world. You see, Christmas is either incredibly cruel, a father who sacrifices his son, or it's an immeasurably loving sacrifice given for you and for me. Isn't that awesome? Would you just bow with me for a second? as we get ready for communion. And I'm going to invite the campus pastors, if you'd come up and online, if you would pay attention there with us in Classics and right here in Centerville. Would you just spend some time for a moment and perhaps, perhaps in this Christmas season, you're facing something that seems to make no sense. And God can give you joy that can overshadow that. Or maybe you're recognizing that you're an addict and you have believed a promise that's empty from the world and you want to just give that up today and allow God to give you joy. Father, would you, pray, would you help us as we pray today? We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you that we're learning that the Christmas story is all through Scripture, that you desire to bring blessing into each one of our lives, joy into each one of our lives, and to all the nations. Father, thank you that we get to be a part of that as we support many, many staff members who are serving all around the world. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow us to go through this Christmas season without receiving joy from you because joy is found 
in you. We thank you, Father, for your great love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen.